from Jude, who is a servant of Jesus Christ, and as we learnt last week, most likely a half-brother of Jesus. And uh, quite an interesting little fact that I found out the other day, that uh, even though Jude was a half-brother of Jesus, and uh, would have been around Jesus quite a lot, um, he didn't actually become a believer, most likely, until after um, Christ's resurrection and maybe even ascension. Um, and I think for me, you know, that gives me a bit of hope. You know, if you've got kids who are not yet believers, he was uh, Jesus' half-brother who didn't actually believe until after the Lord um, returned to heaven. Okay, so Jude, starting at verse 1. Um, reading right through to the end. And our sermon is actually going to be taken from the verses, from verses 5 through to 16. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write to you and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people whose pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only Sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all of this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies. They reject authority and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain, They have rushed into profit, into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. They are autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness. 
and of all the defiant words godly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you that in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building up yourselves in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the the clothing stained by corrupt flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty and power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. We turn to God in prayer. like to read to you some words which were penned some 300 years ago with the intention of them being sung and I think they're very relevant considering the subject that we're going to be listening to in a minute. And will the judge descend and must the dead arise and not a single soul escape his all discerning eyes? How will my heart endure the terrors of that day when earth and heaven before his face astonished shrink away. You sinners seek his grace whose wrath you cannot bear. Fly to the shelter of his cross and find salvation there. So shall that curse be removed by which the Saviour bled and the last awful day He shall pour blessings upon your head. Lord, thank you for the blessings which you pour on our heads every day as your people, blessed and loved by our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And we acknowledge this morning that we are a needy people and we recognise that we are spiritually poor, but by your grace have been made rich beyond comprehension. Thank you that you are love, that love defines who you are and what you are and is the motive for everything that you do. We bow our hearts in awe and reverence at your majesty and your splendor and your glory. Thank you for giving us your most precious gift, your one and only son to be our saviour and the redeemer of this rebellious and fallen world. And so we pray for the preaching of your word today as it goes out across this world to the billions who will hear it. We pray that it would not return void, but that it will achieve its purpose. 
Would you bless Wellesley's words to us this morning, that we would be both challenged and changed and built up in our faith. And so, Lord, we ask all of these things by faith in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Jeff. We'll do open Bibles if you've shut them back at Jude. And let me pray again for God's help to understand it. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us again. Thank you that you're a a speaking God. And we pray that you would be speaking directly into our hearts and lives. Cause us to listen and listen in such a way that we would respond in the way that you want us to, to your living word. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, as we saw last week, the main reason that uh, Jude writes this letter is given to us in verse 3. Dear friends, he says, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled, literally I felt it necessary to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. What we have before us is an urgent appeal from a loving pastor to contend for the faith, to uphold the truth in a generation that is moving away from the truth. And as we saw last week, we will only be able to do that as God's church, as God's holy people, if we are stood on the firm foundation of the gospel. Do you remember the long jump illustration? If you're going to be effective at long jump, you need, you need a firm foundation, you need a firm footing from which to push off from. And if we're going to be a people who contend for the faith, then we need a firm gospel foundation, a firm gospel footing to push off from. And that foundation is given to us in verse 1, to those who've been called, who are loved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. You've been called, loved, and you will be kept. And it is from that position of security that we are now called to contend for the faith if you remember in verse four lastly we looked at the the reason why we need to contend and this is what we'll begin to explore a little bit more this morning verse four for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you their ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ as our only sovereign and Lord. Watch out, says Jude. Watch out for these people because they've slipped into the church. They're living sometimes among the people of God. And through their teaching and through their behavior, they're perverting the grace of God. They're denying the lordship of Jesus Christ, and maybe most tragically, they're leading many others to do the same. And the next 12 verses, which is our our focus this morning, Jude describes these godless leaders to us. He wants us to, to understand what they're really like. And I think there's two main reasons why Jude actually uses the bulk of this letter, the, the, the heart of this letter that he's written to describe these people in such detail. Two reasons. Number one, that we might spot them at a distance. That we might know and understand what these people are like in order that we might keep them at a distance. That they don't get too close. They don't infiltrate and cause great damage and destruction to God's precious church. If you remember last week in Matthew chapter 7, we saw Jesus refer to these false teachers as wolves. Why? Because they're out to destroy the flock. 
And here's the thing, if you're a sheep, which is what you are in this analogy, you're part of the flock of Christ, how much better it is, it is for us as sheep to spot these wolves when they're two or three hills away, rather than when they've already arrived at the gate of the sheep pen. Because by then the damage may already have been done. Jude wants us to spot these people at a distance, to know what they're like, in order that we might keep them at a distance. Because the health and the well-being of the church and the glory of God is at stake. And there's three things that we're going to see this morning in these verses, three characteristics, if you like, of these ungodly leaders. Firstly, they reject the loving authority of Jesus. And we're given three examples in verse 5 to 7 which highlight this particular character trait, all of which are drawn from the Old Testament. Have a look at verse 5. Though you already know all this, says Jude, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. What we have here is a reference to the wilderness generation, to those whom God delivered from slavery in Egypt to take them all the way to the promised land. But here's the brutal facts. Many of those whom God delivered from slavery in Egypt never even made it to the promised land. They fell in the wilderness. Why? Because they failed to believe. They rejected the loving authority of Jesus. Then in verse 6, we have a reference back to Genesis chapter 6. And not to fallen humanity this time, but to fallen angels. This is what we read. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he is kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on that great day. They too stepped outside the parameters that God had laid down. And as a result, they too came under the judgment of God. And then in verse 7, maybe a more familiar story to to many of us, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where we read an, an entire community turns its back on the loving authority of God. A whole city gives itself over to sexual immorality and perversion, and they too came under the fiery judgment of God. But did you notice the end there of verse 7? These people serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. These three godless groups, the wilderness generation, the fallen angels, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, they serve as an example to us. We are meant to learn from them and we are meant to see in them the same characteristics, the same traits that are visible in these false teachers. Jude wants us to understand what they are like so that we might keep them at a distance. And you can see then how Jude pushes home the application in verse 8 in the very same way, like these people, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, they reject authority and heap abuse on celestial beings. Or as we read in verse 10, they're like unreasoning animals. They act according to their own natural fallen instincts, rather than submitting themselves to the word of God. As one commentator helpfully said, they have a theology of the gut. They are led ultimately by what they feel, rather than by what is real. Only a couple of weeks ago, I heard a a thing on the radio where a, a church leader was being interviewed in the area of homosexual marriage. And to paraphrase what he said, he said something like this, I just don't see what's wrong. 
If two men genuinely love each other and want to commit themselves to each other, surely that's a good thing. But you see, that's the theology of the guts. His starting premise is what feels right in here rather than what God says is right in his word. And that is one of the easiest ways to distinguish between a false teacher and a genuine teacher. False teachers are led by the gut. Genuine teachers are led by the word of God. So watch out, says Jude. Watch out for these people who are led by the gut. Falsely then, false teachers reject the loving authority of Jesus Secondly, in doing so, they lead many others astray. Have a look at verse 11, because again, we're given another set of three examples of Old Testament people who do the same thing. Woe to them, says Jude. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They've rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They've been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Cain, as you'll probably be aware, killed His brother Abel, back in Genesis chapter 4, the first murder in the Bible in in a fit of rage and jealousy. But just before he committed this act, we read of God's loving warning in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Sin is crouching at your door, says the Lord to Cain. It's right there at the door of your heart. It desires to master you, but you must master it. Cain didn't master it, it mastered him. And since then, many others have gone the way of Cain. And then we come to Balaam in Numbers 22. And if you read the story in Numbers 22, at first reading, Balaam sounds like a pretty decent bloke. He sounds like a good guy, a sound prophet. But in the end, the end of the story, he's exposed as the man that he really is, a prophet for hire who led many people away from the Lord. This is what we read in Numbers chapter 31, right at the end of the story. They were the ones, that's the Midianite people. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord. Balaam's unfaithfulness and persuasiveness led many others into sin. And then lastly, we've got Korah. He was a a leader in the tribe of Levi. You can read about him in Numbers chapter 16. And he gathered together this whole following who together they stood in public rebellion against Moses, the Lord's appointed. And again, as you read in that story, the consequences were great, not just for Korah, but for all those whom he led astray. Do you see the point that Jude is making? These are leaders who don't just wander away from God and disappear quietly into the background. But through their teaching and through their way of life, they are actively leading others to follow in their way. And that is why Jude says, woe to them. Woe to them because they've taken the way of Cain. They've rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They've been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Jude wants us to understand, hopefully you're getting the point, what these people are like. So we might spot them at a distance. And so we might keep them at a distance because the eternal well-being of others is at stake. Firstly, they reject the loving authority of Jesus. Secondly, They lead many others astray. And then thirdly, they promise delight, but deliver destruction. Let me read to you again verse 12 and verse 13. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, 
eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves, they are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead, they're wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever." One of the best things about the book of Jude from a a preacher's point of view is you don't have to work too hard to think of good illustrations because they're already there. In the space of two verses, we have six wonderful descriptions or illustrations of what these false teachers are like. Firstly, these these are blemishes, says Jude, at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. The love feast is another term for the fellowship meal in our language. It's like a church lunch. Like when we gathered together here three weeks ago. And what does Jude say? These people are eating alongside you. They've, they've, they've slipped into the life of the church without the slightest qualm. They're eating alongside you. They are blemishes. Or in the ESV translation, we read that they are hidden reefs. Which of course may look beautiful on planet Earth. You see those rich reefs. The coral coast and the, and the streaming with life and the, and the beautiful fresh blue waters pouring over these reefs. But of course, if you're a sailor in Jude's day, there's nothing beautiful about a hidden reef. It would bring you and your people to destruction. And the sad story of history is that many people's faith has been shipwrecked on these hidden reefs. Their teaching and their way of life, we learn, is destructive. Secondly, these people are shepherds who feed only themselves. The job of a shepherd, of course, they do many things, but their job actually is pretty simple, is to care for the sheep. And it's the same for a Christian leader. Their their job, they do many things, but essentially their job is to take care of the people of God. But sadly, these leaders care nothing for the people, only for themselves. And at the first sign of trouble, like you can see on the screen, they will run. Because they're not actually bothered about the people. They are bothered just about themselves. Thirdly, these people are clouds without rain blown along by the wind. They promise so much. If you're a farmer living in a, the context of a, of a dry and arid climate, when you see those, form, those clouds forming on the horizon, you'll be rubbing your hands together with glee. Why? Because clouds bring rain and rain brings life. But these leaders are waterless clouds. There's no rain in them. There's no life in them. They promise much. They're on the horizon. They're coming to bring life. They do not, in fact, bring delight. They only bring destruction. They're blown aimlessly along by the wind. And they bring no life to the people of God. Fourthly, these people are autumn trees without fruit, uprooted, and twice dead. Just like the clouds from a distance, a tree might look like it's doing all right. When you come up close, you can see actually it's fruitless. There's no life in it because there's no root in Christ. They are twice dead, no fruit, and there's no chance of fruit because there is no root embedded into the Lord Jesus. These people are twice dead. Fifthly, these people are like the wild waves of the sea foaming up in their shame, unpredictable in their nature and powerful in their destruction. And all they leave behind is a froth on the surface and the broken debris of people's lives. And then lastly, 
These people we learn are like wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Jude is writing, of course, at a time pre-GPS and pre-road maps when the only direction you would have at night is by following the stars. They were the main source of guidance. But these teachers are not like the star that led people to the Lord Jesus. These are wandering stars. They're not leading people to Jesus. They're leading people away from Jesus. And because of that, their end, as we read, is certain. And hopefully you heard the common note struck again and again throughout this passage. The judgment of God will fall against such people. You cannot miss it, can you, as you read through this letter. Many who were delivered were destroyed. The angels were kept bound, everlasting chains for judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Those who follow the way of Cain and Balaam and Korah will be destroyed. Unfruitful trees are twice dead and the blackest darkness awaits those wandering stars. It's like a cold shower in the morning, isn't it? A spurt of cold again and again and again. Waking us up to the reality of what will await those people who follow in this way. And then from verse 14, this certain end is spelled out to us in even greater clarity. You're probably thinking we didn't need it. But these aren't my words. These are the words of God through Jude. And this is what he says. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. Enoch, if you remember, is that, that legend of faith in Genesis chapter 5. He walked with God and was no more. He didn't even experience death. He was taken straight up into heaven. And this is what he prophesied. It's in the book of First Enoch, which isn't in our canon of scripture. It's an extra biblical source. But this is what he prophesies. Let me read to you verse 14. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of the ungodly acts they've committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And then Jude adds his own commentary in verse 16. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. They reject the loving authority of Jesus. They lead others astray. They promise delight, but deliver destruction. And because of that, their end is certain. What, of course, is less certain is how will we as a church respond in these challenging times? False teaching will remain until the Lord Jesus comes back. The Bible tells us that. The question for each one of us as God's holy people, as we listen to this urgent appeal to contend for the faith, is what will that look like for us? Will our behavior be any different as a result of reading this letter, really? Will it? Will we now stand for Christ in a different way when we understand the battle that we face as believers in this world? Will our prayer life be any more earnest as a result of understanding what we've just read? See, remember, this is a, this is a contest, isn't it? It's not a, it's not a physical contest, it's a spiritual contest that will be won or lost on our knees before Almighty God. And so I want to finish with three things that I'm going to urge you this morning to pray for as we contend in prayer for our church and for the people of this world. Three things to pray for. Number one, will you pray for our children? 
We've had a lot of conversation over the last six weeks on, on the parenting course about what it looks like to raise children in this godless world. And I'm not saying that it was easy when we were young. But here's the deal. There are certain things that our children are facing and will face tomorrow morning in school that were not even on the radar when we were at school. They weren't even on the radar. They weren't even in the picture. And of course, we can speak into all these different things. But can I suggest the thing that we need to give our children most is a biblical world view. We need to help all of our children see all of life through the lens of the gospel so that when they hear wrong stuff in their classroom this week, when they hear stuff from their friends in the playground that isn't right, they don't just accept this stuff and form their own worldview on the basis of it. But that God in his kindness through the word of God would awaken their consciences that they would understand what is right and what is wrong according to the word of God, not according to culture. And that by the grace of God, he would enable them to contend for the faith and to wrestle for what is right. We need to be praying for our children. Secondly, will we pray for churches with wayward leaders in them like those described in the book of Jude? I gave some stats out last week regarding the Church of England and and some of the clergy and who, who are denying what we would call central Christian doctrines. These are the wolves that Jesus speaks about dressed in sheep's clothing. And they're ravaging the flock right now. It's a horrible thought, isn't it? As we sit here, I pray week by week under the faithful teaching of God's word, his word, as we enjoy the blessings of being together in a church like this that upholds the word of God. There are people right now sat in churches right now like this one that are coming under unsound false teaching. Will we pray that God would bring these leaders back? Would we pray that God would reassert the Bible back in every pulpit in this land, that the word of God would be faithfully taught, that these people would repent, that they would turn from their sin, that they'd no longer be led by their guts, but by the word of God, because there are so many people that are struggling under teaching like that today. And we need to pray. We need to pray for brothers and sisters in Christ in these churches. And we need to pray that God will bring these leaders back. That they would start teaching the word of God once again. Because the salvation of many, many, many souls is at stake. Pray for our children, please. Pray for churches where these people are currently leading and serving. And pray for the teaching in our church. It's wonderful, isn't it, to be part of a growing church where we pray the word of God is taught faithfully. A church that is built on the legacy of so many years faithful preaching. Some of you have been here 30, 40 years faithful preaching, right? What a wonderful privilege that is. But let's not take it for granted. Because there are many churches who 50 years ago were central hubs for flourishing gospel activity and they are now nothing more than tea rooms. They open up their doors for 11 o'clock tea and cake. Why? Because they have moved away from the word of God. And guess what? It doesn't happen overnight. This happens steadily over years as we begin to lose the prominence of the word of God amongst his people. Will we pray? This is what it means to contend. It's more than this. 
But it certainly is this, that we would pray and contend in prayer for our children, for ourselves, for wayward churches, and for the future of this church. And so can I encourage us now for the next few minutes, we're going we're gonna to come to the Lord's table in a minute, but could you take the next two or three minutes on your own to contend in prayer? In the quietness of your own heart, start there. Maybe there's other things that you want to pray into, but start there and let's be a people who contend in prayer for the sake of the gospel in this generation. As this happens, maybe the service can come to the front as well and then we'll move to the Lord's table in a few minutes' time. But let's pray. Well, over the last few weeks, we've become aware of the the danger and the presence of false teaching in this world. But as we come to the Lord's table, we come before the one and we remember one who doesn't just speak truth, but who is the truth. John chapter 14, verse 6, we read this of the Lord Jesus. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no life outside of Christ and he is the truth. Then again in John chapter 1 verse 14, the word became flesh, the eternal God clothed himself in humanity and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of what? Full of grace and full of truth. And of course it's at the cross of Jesus Christ where we see the grace of God displayed to us most fully. And that's what's represented before us this morning with the bread and the wine. The bread, of course, is a symbol of the body of our Lord Jesus who gave himself for us. And the wine is the blood of Jesus that was spilt that each one of us might know the wonder of forgiveness. So let's pray, shall we, as we come to the Lord's table. Father, in a moment of quiet now, we stop to acknowledge our own sin and our own need for a saviour. Father, we give you great thanks that Jesus is that saviour. Thank you that he came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Thank you that he dwelt among us in order to die for us. Thank you that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Help us to know that way. Help us to be sure of that way. Help us to know that truth and help us to be sure of that truth and help us to enjoy the life that he alone can give. And we pray it for his glory. Amen.